World War I is over, and so are America's days of legal alcoholic drink. Convinced self-sacrifice and sobriety will bring prosperity and peace as it won victory in war, Americans praise passing of the dry law. And then enforcement begins. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 34, The Iron Law. On May 31st, 2022, Carolyn Bennett, the Federal Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, held a press conference. Thank you all for being here. Today, I'm here to announce that I will be granting British Columbia's exemption request. As of, as of January 31st, 2023, adults 18 and over in British Columbia will no longer be subject to criminal charges for the possession of up to 2.5 grams of certain illegal drugs for personal use, and the drugs will not be confiscated. This was a big moment. It was an important step. Our movement has been fighting for decriminalization for decades. To us, decrim means getting cops, courts, and jails out of our lives. It means that police gotta stop harassing, arresting, and seizing dope off of us. For the past year, Vandu has sent me and a couple of others to sit on a government committee and fight for this vision. Not surprisingly, a lot of our advice was disregarded. Cops fought for low thresholds, and they won. That means that a big proportion of drug users in British Columbia will remain criminalized. Cops and politicians have also been making noise about ramping up enforcement on dealers. On today's show, I talked to Leo Beletsky about why this is a bad idea that could make the overdose crisis even worse. Could you introduce yourself for us? Sure. My name is Leo Boletsky. I'm a professor of law and health sciences at Northeastern University, which is in Boston, Mass. Uh, I'm also on faculty at uh, UC San Diego School of Medicine, and I run the Health and Justice Action Lab uh, at Northeastern. So my research is basically what it sounds like is at the intersection of law and public health. Uh, with focus on overdose, addiction, um, infectious disease transmission. Well, thanks. Thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Um, we've we've had some um, some moves in Canada, I guess, over over my long life in drugs, which is, you know, people have nicer names for us now. You know, like back when I was really like uh, late teens, early twenties, there was no. There was no word like people who use drugs or something like that, you know? Yep. They just had nasty words. And everybody hated us and thought we were the scourge of the world. And just no one – it was not impolite to just say the worst things. And politicians, everybody said the worst things, you know? But now now everyone's kind of more polite. I think they've recognized that this is sort of a more – almost like a more effective form of politics in some ways. Yeah. 
and and that includes some uh, police, like some police leaderships, I should say. They've they've uh, recognized that a kind of a a friendly officer friendly kind of approach uh, is good for, for them. And when I've sat on these uh, decriminalization committees with different jurisdictions, I've been on two in the last year, spent a lot of hours there now. Mm-hmm. Um, I went, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users sent me, and I, I'll do my job that I'm mandated to do by the board of that organization because I've been a activist and a member there for a long time. But it means you're sitting on a committee sometimes with cops. And uh, they, you know, they'll talk nice like uh, we're trying to save lives here. And, and they'll tell you, and they told me again and again from different police forces, the RCMP, uh, someone representing the Association of Chiefs of Police, the Vancouver Police Department, that getting drugs off the street is what saves lives. The Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police is calling for simple drug possession to be decriminalized, saying it will keep the country safer and better address addiction issues. For more, let's bring in Chief Constable Adam Palmer. Addiction is not against the law and addiction should not be treated as a crime. We still believe that issues like trafficking and production and importation should definitely be dealt with by the police, but simple possession. Mm -hmm. Let's look at another method that will be better for serving all Canadians and getting them on the right path. Like we want to save lives. We all want to do this. So that's why we're, that's why we're getting drugs off the street. And, And that's why we want to focus on the dealers. That's why we really want to go after the dealers. And this go after the dealers is the new kind of consensus. We've been we've been separated off into the poor victim waif drug users and the evil uh, cartel boss um, drug dealer. That's kind of in maybe in the popular and the political imagination in Canada right now. Merely arresting individuals for simple possession of illicit drugs has proven to be ineffective. Deputy Chief Wilson, in your case, was there a particular experience? that changed your mind about the approach to take on this issue. It was really tragic to see the way that we would have uh, non-addicted traffickers coming into the downtown east side and using addicted members of that community to sell drugs. And that's just one small And so example. there's there's this emerging consensus we really got to go after this fentanyl is terrible it's killing everyone these these dealers they know it they're they're setting out to kill people we're going to go get them. And I, I just think this is the same logic uh, that's going to make the situation worse. There, there are two problems. Well, there are many problems, but there's two major problems with the, you know, uh, go after the dealer banner. First, who is defined as a dealer? That definition is very problematic because oftentimes folks who are defined as dealers and get the brunt of punitive approaches are people who engage in survival drug trafficking. Um, those folks are mu- much more likely to be arrested and prosecuted at the full extent of the law than anyone higher up the chain. Because there mm-hmm. are more of these folks, it's easier to make a case. I'll just give an example if I might. So drug-induced homicide prosecutions take a fatal overdose and reframe it as a murder. Romello Marshman was 22 when he took what he believed to be cocaine from someone last May. Days later, he was found dead on his couch in Nashville. The medical examiner found high levels of fentanyl in his system. With it being laced with fentanyl, it's poisoning, it's murder. Drug dealers, they don't necessarily want the customer dead. They just don't care 
if that person does die. Tennessee is one of 20 states prosecuting drug-induced homicide. Even so, the logic is you uh, share or distribute drugs with someone, you sell those drugs, the person dies, you're now on the hook for their death. So this has been a uh, increasingly favorite tool of drug interdiction. When you, I should, I should just say that um, this is the same in British Columbia. Right, right. Like um, in in 2017, this is just in the in the first year after we had this officially declared uh, overdose crisis here. Um, the BC Court of Appeal increased the range of of sentencing for just for trafficking for fentanyl trafficking. To, from to eighteen to thirty six months, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's going up from the sort of standard six to twelve months in other parts of Canada. So we we got ahead. We we said we're going to be harsher. Yes, you know that's uh, that's currently there, there's there's new developments in that, but that was our response. You know that's it's just like yeah. it's just like oh we we care about you, so we're going to use these harsh measures right. to to right. fight the overdose crisis. Right, I think you know? I think that's a, an interesting observation too, which is that you know we now care about drug users, and therefore under the banner of protecting them, we're going to basically rebrand. Uh, a lot of users as dealers and then like harshly mm-hmm. punish them and say, we've done a great job. But I mean, I, I, I went out with this girl for eight years and I scored for us, Yeah, you know, like yeah. I go out and score for us. And so of I course. was carrying two people's supply and, and giving it to her, yes. you know? So like, what does that make me? That like, makes it's, you it's under the like, current, the way that the law is written. I don't know, uh, you know what the BC criminal code says, but in United States, essentially, the word that's used in these provisions is distribution. Um, I have someone who works with us, uh, Morgan Godwin. I don't know if you've come across her. Yeah, definitely. This is her story. By the age of 21, Morgan Godwin was addicted to heroin. She sold a gram of heroin to one of her best friends, Justin DeLong, who then died of an overdose. She was charged with delivery resulting in death and served four and a half years in prison. That was a gift. Federal mandatory minimum for drug delivery resulting in death in the United States is 20 years in federal prison. And so lots of people are now spending lots of time in federal and state custody for essentially sharing or, you know, scoring drugs for their friends or their loved ones. And these are the people that that a lot of prosecutors and police are saying, we're putting drug dealers behind bars. We are taking this poison off the, off of our streets. Morgan caught my eye with this line in a piece that she wrote for the Washington Post. The archetypal predatory drug dealer is a myth. For many, a sale is not about ruthless profit, it's about survival. Every heroin dealer that I ever met was someone who was addicted to heroin first and foremost. They turned to that out of desperation. Sometimes they were locked out of the legal economy because they'd got felony convictions. And so that if they were able to just buy three grams of heroin instead of a half gram and sell it into small little bits to their friends, because we have to develop a social circle. It's not like we can buy heroin from the pharmacy and it's not profitable at all. Low level drug dealers make less than minimum wage. So that's, that's where the rhetoric doesn't meet the reality. You know, and of course what you said also is true, which is even if 
law enforcement was actually doing what they say that they're doing, which is going after drug trafficking organizations, doing that, taking them at their word, would make matters worse. But they're not even by and large doing that. Cops in Canada can feel the winds changing and they're trying to get out ahead. Vancouver Police and the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police both officially support the decriminalization of very small amounts of illicit drugs for simple possession. But in the same breath, they want to double down on trafficking, production and importation. They say this approach will save lives, which of course is bullshit. And people like Leo have studied why. When law enforcement does spectacular busts to get drugs off the street, what happens next? Do we all just go home and kick? No, a vacuum gets created and it's filled with more and more contaminated drugs. The iron law of prohibition goes some way to explaining this drugs arms race. It's the idea that the more law enforcement there is against a banned substance, the more potent it becomes. More potent means you can more easily smuggle it in a smaller volume. It means more bang for your buck. Leo writes a lot about this, and the classic example is alcohol prohibition. The entire cocktail culture in the United States, you know, like if you go to a bar in the United States now, a lot of times you'll see people in suspenders and, you know, bow ties and stuff like that. And bartenders don't wear this by accident. It's, it's because this is a legacy of the prohibition era. It's against the law to drink, so drinking is suddenly smart. There's bootleg liquor on every American lip, shiny flask on every hip. By the middle 1920s, nightlife is having its heyday, for America's dry and high. Americans were, by and large, used to drinking beer and wine. When alcohol became prohibited federally, um, you know, iron law prohibition explains what occurred, which was that over time and actually pretty quickly, a lot of the product shifted from being uh, dominated by beer and wine to being dominated by spirits. Oh, so like people weren't drinking screwdrivers and stuff like that before? Many um... fewer people were drinking screwdrivers. Um, consumption preferences really... Um, couldn't be expressed because for, for the folks who were manufacturing and transporting alcohol, there was a clear economic imperative to shift their product towards uh, more potent, uh, more compact supply than, than beer and wine, which is what a lot of consumers wanted. And so they started to flood the market with spirits. When the 18th Amendment was passed, I earnestly hoped, with a host of advocates of temperance, that it would be generally supported by public opinion, that this has not been the result, but rather that drinking generally has increased, that the speakeasy has replaced the saloon, not only unit for unit, but probably twofold, if not threefold. You had lots and lots of situations where you know, the product became adulterated um, either through poor manufacturing practices or in a very sad chapter of American history, the federal government actually deliberately adulterated the
the supply, the illicit supply to kind of issue a warning and send a message to the public that this was not safe. And unfortunately, uh, a bunch of people got sick and, and a bunch of people died. So although right now we don't have, you know, evidence that would suggest that uh, the opioid supply is being uh, deliberately adulterated by the government, it does give rise to a lot of the conspiracy theories that you hear about, for example, about the crack cocaine era and the role of U.S. government in that, um, as well as, you know, the current situation with fentanyl. So I guess, um, you know, if, if prohibition ends tomorrow, we're not all going to go back to smoking opium, that uh, strong uh, injectable opioids are going to be here to stay. For, for a long time, just like uh, cocktail culture is here to stay. I think, Garth, that's a very, uh, that's a very important point. And, and it's something that I've thought about a lot because having watched the uh, fentanyl crisis unfold in the United States, you know, originally when we first started looking at it and writing about it, uh, it, it was, I think, fair to say that the supply was being driven by supplier preferences and not by consumer preferences in the sense. Absolutely. That's just what was happening here yeah. is that people wanted heroin and they were getting fentanyl and, and lots of people didn't like it. But then you get habituated and then you get wired and then heroin just isn't doing it for you anymore. Absolutely. You know, so you, you gotta you gotta get fentanyl. Yeah. And I think government governmental uh, agencies sometimes will sort of point the finger towards consumers and they'll say, well, look at this, you know, there are people, uh, I hear, you know, law enforcement agents talk about this sometimes, you know, people want this stuff. Like, what do you want us to do? This is, you know, this is what people want. Sure, I mean, want. we do, we do now, right? right? But it's not like, it's not like we get to walk into like a, a, a shop and choose all the different varieties there and say, oh, it's fentanyl for me, right? It's like that, that desire uh, or that need is conditioned, uh, conditioned by um, what's available, which is itself conditioned by the cops who are saying it's all on us. You know, I think that's a really important point. Uh, you know, these consumer preferences they adjust over time, and they are driven by potency. And so, when folks who have been conditioned and habituated towards fentanyl, uh, you give them black tar heroin you know, it just doesn't have the same pharmacological effects. And so people feel like it's not doing it for them. Leo has studied the arrival of fentanyl in North America. He's identified a number of causes. Doctors cut thousands of patients off their meds during the big oxymoral panic. Border agents seized more and more heroin along the U.S.-Mexico border, and judges started handing down harsher penalties for dealing and using. All of this brought us fentanyl. And now, in B.C., we're seeing the next stage, benzodope, a mixture of fentanyl and benzodiazepine-like substances. I was interested to find out that something like this happened in the U.K. around 2010 or 2011. A fungal poppy disease in Afghanistan led to poor crops, plus the U.S. was busy destroying poppy fields, and police in different countries were cracking down on distribution routes. Heroin coming into Britain was getting choked off, so dealers padded it out with benzos like a prazolam. 
UK drug users started to suffer blackouts, memory loss, and more complicated overdoses. They started getting wired to benzos and becoming polysubstance users, when before they'd only used heroin. We've seen all of that here. I started thinking about the parallels of the move to moonshine during alcohol prohibition and the move to benzo dope in the drug war. So let's just uh, leave the uh, speakeasies of the 30s and and uh, come to the last couple of years. Um, you, you know, the first time I that benzo dope really hit home to me was um, when we had a partner of someone on our editorial board overdosed just um, in the next room while we were having a crackdown listening party. And this was mm. the summer of 2019. Uh, like we'd all been used to regular opioid overdoses our most of our lives, really. But this one was really strange, you know. Mm -hmm. When did you figure out that it wasn't a regular overdose? When when Laura told me that Narcan didn't work. As much Narcan as they put into me right. at Vandu. And That's right, they put shit tons into you. Shit like people tons. at Vandu put a bunch and then the ambulance guys put in a bunch. Do you want me to tell you what I remember from it? Of course. Well... He wasn't talking right. He was behaving really weird. He wasn't coming out of it like we would expect. Mm -hmm. And and so he went, we sent him to the hospital, like ambulance to the hospital, mm. right? And, um, you know, we'd kind of been hearing these anecdotal reports about uh, benzodiazepine-like substances um, entering the drug stream. So we were seeing fentanyl and these benzo-like substances together. And then when the pandemic hit, it just seemed like this this took over, you know, so it was about six or eight months after that, um, that overdose of the editorial board uh, members partner, that it just started happening more and more and more until it just seems like it's, it's overtaken the drug supply around here. And that's all, that's all we're seeing now. Frontline workers on the downtown east side are sounding the alarm after a surge in drug overdoses. They say they've noticed the drug supply lately has been laced with a powerful benzodiazepine along with the opioid fentanyl. Overdosing on opioids laced with benzos is riskier because naloxone, an immediate reversal drug, does not work on benzos. They're not really coming back traditionally how they used to, so you're kind of wondering if they're actually coming back. You know, this is like something that doctors tell me the sedative effects of the combination of benzodiazepines and opioids together is synergistic, that it's really a, a deeper yeah. a type of sedative effect. Right. Do you think this is iron law or is this COVID squeezing off the supply chain or is COVID squeezing the supply chain kind of a type of example of iron law? Uh, well, this is, you know, this is speculation and... I have to say that the Canadian experience with benzodope uh, has not been uh, reflected in the U.S. yet. Uh, well, can I tell you something? I'll tell you the listeners. What happens to us here in yes. Vancouver happens to everyone eventually. It's true. We're the fucking bellwether. You're here. right. It's a canary in a coal mine. I think this is really key. Listen, I think that the combination of opioids and benzos is not new. In many ways, ca calling this overdose crisis, the opioid crisis obscures and is a smokescreen for the reality that it is a polypharmacy situation, mm -hmm. you know, like um, a majority in, in a lot of jurisdictions uh, of, of fatal overdoses are polypharmacy overdoses. So, so opioids with benzos, opioids with alcohol, right? These synergistic effects of depressants happening at the same time. 
hundred percent. We see that in the coroner stats here all the time. So, yeah. So I think that that is maybe, uh, you know, the precursor to the benzodope situation. And, and, um, it is my understanding that the benzodope mixing the cocktail that is, uh, circulating is, you know, it happens at the cutting level. It is not being, uh, brought in as such by the drug trafficking organizations. That's just what I've heard. Maybe what happened is that because of the disruptions of the supply chain, um, a lot of the, the sellers may have been kind of strapped for the supply and they wanted to sell something that was going to pack a punch so that people wouldn't complain that it wouldn't, you know, that wasn't strong right. enough. And that they, right. they innovated by making this co- these cocktails and saying, okay, well, this packs a punch. Maybe it's a little bit of a different punch than, than what you were looking for, but it's still pretty strong. But is the iron law of prohibition really always so iron? I asked Leo about examples that seem to contradict the law, like weed and rock. So when I when I first encountered the Iron Law, I thought, wow, what a, what a great thing, because I, I was just thinking about the arrival of fentanyl and how it took over from heroin a lot. And I, I mean, I I just heard about this um, in the last few years. But um, thinking about rock, um, like crack is not uh, like lower volume than cocaine, and it's not um, more potent than cocaine, right? Like you're like stepping it down. Um, I think the the thinking is, is that by applying these enforcement pressures, you create opportunity for innovation. And that innovation oftentimes is trying to kind of squeeze more out of the supply chain. And in, in the, in so doing, it makes it, um, it makes it more dangerous, but the iron law is, I think, you know, packs a broader point, which you rightly note. And I think as with all theories, there are sort of inconsistencies. But overall, I think that the rule of thumb holds. Um, and it's a useful uh, frame to apply to. Rule of thumb sounds so much softer than iron law. I <laughs> mean, maybe we maybe it needs a rebranding like the copper law of prohibition or the, I don't know, the gold law or the lead law, like a softer metal that's more malleable. You're right. You're right. It is not, it is not a ironclad law. So there are, there are definitely kinks in the system. Uh, You know, we could talk about, for example, how that applies to the legal cannabis market, which is, um, you know, sometimes a uh, sort of counterpoint that people pose to the iron law theory. But the pot's got a lot stronger, though, but that's been in the last decade or two than it was before. That Well, it was still illegal in most places. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But the, uh, you know, the real explosion of innovation in the cannabis field with, uh, you know, the sort of advent of tinctures and edibles and um, all kinds of other products that really pack a big THC punch those, you know, those were not available through the traditional kind of uh, mm. illicit supply chain. Mm. And so uh, I think o- overall, if you were to map and graph the potency of THC products sold now versus what was sold, you know, 10, 15 years ago, um, that potency probably is is a bunch higher. You know, Vancouver started from a place where people just smoked opium 113, 114 years ago. 
And then when that was outlawed, when opium production was outlawed, we started on this this escalator of going from and stronger and stronger and and more potent. And each of those steps has um, this iron law quality to it. But they also have like these confounding factors that occur, um, like like COVID. And and I just think that maybe um, instead of an iron law of economics, there's sort of like this like almost like evolutionary dynamic. And I think that benzodope might be the evolutionary adaptation to the conditions around here, which were a real, um, you know, long kind of crackdown on fentanyl over a lot of jurisdictions and then the arrival of COVID. You know, economics is not a exact science. It is a social science, even though it's often treated as a kind of almost a mathematical science, right? Um, it is subject to all kinds of exceptions and, uh, you know, social behavioral processes that are not explainable simply by, um, you know, sort of incentives. And we're not purely economic beings, we're social beings. And so I think it fails in some ways, but it, but it does offer some useful frames and um, insights. If I can wax poetic for a second, I think that, you know, the arrival of benzodope also coincided with a lot of misery, a lot of pain. And and that it's, it's you know, helping people cope. And so the fact that it has emerged on the illicit market is not a surprise. You know, if heroin's like a warm blanket, benzodope is like a weighted blanket, like a thunder mm. blanket that mm-hmm. you just throw over your head, right? Mm-hmm. It just seems we we are in an increasingly desperate society that's meaner and meaner and so sometimes you just need to put out the lights sometimes like and i've definitely felt this and i've used benzos and opioids for this reason is like when you just feel like fuck i just wish i didn't exist right now that's like the time for benzo dope you know listen i think more and more people are feeling that way now we're, we're coping creatures, and I think people are going to continue to search out ways of uh, coping that, that are not always, you know, the most functional, but, but it's just a, a survival mechanism. coping creatures just trying to survive that's what leo says and i agree but not just criminalized drug users in bc all of us we all need something to take the edge off the apocalypse this move towards decriminalization by government is a small first step but if it comes with a crackdown on dealers the mass dying will only get worse we know that from 114 years of prohibition and from the Iron Law. Television highlights of the news of yesteryear. Crackdown is produced on Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories. 
I'd like to acknowledge the loss of two amazing community leaders this month. Kat Norris was a comrade and a fighter from Lax and First Nation. I got to know Kat when community groups banded together to fight the extra policing and gentrification that came with Vancouver's 2010 Olympics. Kat's been sticking up for people in East Vancouver since the late 1970s, and she was famous for her fry bread giveaways. I'd also like to say goodbye to Chrissy Brett. Chrissy was from the New Hulk Nation. She organized and acted as a spokesperson and defender for many tent encampments in Victoria and Vancouver, including Oppenheimer Park and Strathcona Park. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and rest in peace, Dave Murray, Greg Frez, and Sharice Kiwatton. This episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Alex Kim, Alex DeBoer, Lisa Hale, Ryan McNeil, and me, Garth Mullins. Sound designed by Alex Kim. Original score was written and performed by James Ash. Special thanks also to Professor Magdalena Harris for her time and research on the UK heroin shortage. If you like what we do, please consider donating at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. Crackdown is funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Stay safe and keep six.